Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, where we run down this month's August 2022 edition, Volume 118, Issue 2. Kurt, Eve, it's nice to be back with you two. How are you? Wonderful to be here. We got a we got a great episode up for you. Lots of controversial stuff. Great to be back and looking forward to another great discussion. And I'll put in a little teaser here. We're not sure in with which order this will come out, but we did have a presence at the recent Eshri 2022 meeting in Europe, and we have a lot of really good podcast content. Eve, do you want to just tell us a little bit about how that went? Eshri was great. I really enjoyed interacting with our European and Asian community. There's tons of great science, and I want to point everyone to one particular interview from an embryologist from the Ukraine who describes his experience transporting embryos out of their lab into Slovakia for 15 days straight at the beginning of the bombings in February. It was a remarkable story and just an honor and a pleasure to talk to him. For all of those who weren't unable to attend Eshri, this is a great little pickup. You'll be able to hear a lot of the science and share many of the accents. Yeah, that was, um, we, we had such a mix from Asia to UK to Netherlands and beyond. It was, it was really interesting. I hope that everybody listens and I really enjoyed interacting with our colleagues in other countries. I wonder if the, they're having a similar conversation, but talking about your Midwestern accent, Eve. Well, let's go ahead and get started with this month's issue, um, August 2022. Eve, the first article that we, we want to talk about is the fertile battle. We're talking about endometrial linings again in ART. I feel like we beat this to death, but what did the fertile battle bring up? Thanks. This month's fertile battle is titled Endometrial Thickness, How Thin is Too Thin? And it was put together by editorial editor Anuja Dogris. And the battle has two sides. And this was a little bit different than other things that we've talked about. The first side argues that a thin endometrial stripe needs to be improved. And this side was written by Emily Jacobs, Brad Van Voorhees, and Jennifer Kwas. And they agree that outcomes seem to worsen as endometrial thickness decreases below seven. And there's not an endometrial thickness at which the chance of pregnancy and subsequent live birth has been reported to be zero. But I think what really differentiates their argument is they discuss that there's an optimal thickness range that maximizes pregnancy and obstetric outcomes. They discuss the importance of the endometrium. They review the data on thin linings and adverse pregnancy outcomes as a result of impaired placentation that may lead to increased risk for pregnancy loss, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, preterm delivery, placenta previa, and cesarean section. And I think that's really where this article stands out. The infants conceived in these pregnancies are also at risk for IUGR, small for gestational age, and lower birth weight. They review solutions for increasing endometrial thickness, and they discuss other, quote, add-ons, such as PRP, GCSF, sildenafil, and surgery, and the mixed outcomes data reported in the literature. But I think that the point that they bring up about that optimal thickness window and adverse outcomes outside of that window are really salient. The con side of the fertile battle was written by Lakshmi Kandapali and Kimberly Liu. They note that pregnancies have been reported with endometrial thickness as low as four millimeters, and they state that patients with thin lining should be offered to proceed with embryo transfer, but counseled that pregnancy and live birth rates are reduced. They branch off a little bit. They discuss natural versus medicated FET cycles, citing no differences in outcomes with regard to thickness, and also discuss that root of hormone therapy, oral versus vaginal estrogen, doesn't influence clinical pregnancy or live birth rates. In discussing some of the adjuvant therapies, they also introduce um, the idea of electroacupuncture. They discuss that that too doesn't improve success, and also hysteroscopy doesn't improve success. In summary, the authors on this side state that patients can be reassured that pregnancy can still be achieved with an endometrial thickness of less than eight millimeters. 
But I personally think that we need more data on the outcome portion. And I think it really begs the question of just because we can achieve pregnancy in some of these patients, should we? Should we be focusing on pregnancy or should we be focusing on ultimate outcomes of these pregnancy? I know you and I have had this conversation back and forth for a while about thin linings. And yes, you can make the lining thicker, you can improve thickness at time of transfer. But once you transfer that embryo, some of the outcomes are really poor. Um, You have abnormal placentation, you have hemorrhage, you have cesarean hysterectomy, not to mention all of the fetal issues that you see in pregnancy conceived in thin lining. So I struggle with this too, because I feel passionately about if you can fix it, fix it. And if you can make it better, make it better. But at what cost? Yeah, I, I just wonder in some of these patients, is it really fixable? And to what end are we going to achieve pregnancy? And I, I have followed my patients over time and have had some pretty scary outcomes, 24-week deliveries, placenta accreta, placenta percreta in a lot of these patients. And I've also had those patients where I've absolutely braced myself, called the OB, warn the OB that there may be postpartum hemorrhage, there may be um, retained placenta, only to have that patient have an uneventful, normal, spontaneous delivery with no complications. So I think this is an area that really begs to be studied further. I think this is a microcosm of what we do with ART in that we spend a lot of time trying to improve a surrogate outcome. And honestly, even though I just heard you two speak, we don't really know how bad the outcomes are with a thin stripe. We're all talking about anecdote here. So um, I agree, we've got two important decisions here. Should we fix something just because it'd be fixed? And when our patient is asking us, should we be throwing things at it that we don't know that don't work? Or do we, I mean, no one's saying we shouldn't help somebody. So I think we have to live with those outcomes I wouldn't necessarily overstate them, but I just would make sure their patient is counseled and we do our best to take care of her. I think if we take a step back, we should, there's also the point about talking about primary prevention. How do we prevent iatrogenic thin linings? And I think the smallest percentage of thin linings are idiopathic, where it's just, why won't this lining thicken? But a lot of the thin linings that we see are a result of postpartum hemorrhage, curatage in the, peri- in the postpartum setting, um, we see a lot of this and I think thinking about how we can be proactive about minimizing some of that trauma when we're going after retained products with a sharp curette and not helping that lining thicken and monitor it afterwards. Um, these are all things that I think we can be more proactive about. And I love Eve's point about proactively sharing and communicating with the obstetricians some of the ART interventions that we are performing that we know there's at least some signal, maybe not necessarily strong associations, but to hopefully tip them off that this is something that you should be on the lookout for. Whether or not that influences their behavior, causes more iatrogenic harm, I think is up for debate, but I like the idea of communicating ART interventions to obstetricians to hopefully improve outcomes. Well well said, Pietro. We need to get out of our box. We need to do our best to have people um, at optimal health when they conceive, even before they come to us, and we need to do our best to um, communicate what we're doing to people um, that are taking care of them after they see us. And that's going to be a theme you're going to hear, at least through the articles that I'm reviewing here too, as well. Well, let's keep going. We have a seminal contribution this month, which is a really well done, interesting RCT out of the University of California, San Francisco. Eve, why don't you tell us more about it? Thanks, Pietro. I really love this study. I'm fascinated by trigger and different trigger mechanisms. So this is right up my alley. The title of this article is Triggering with 1,500 Units of HCG Plus FSH Compared to Standard HCG Trigger Dose for Oocyte Competence in IVF Cycles, a Randomized Double-Blinded Non-Inferiority Controlled Trial. And this was done by Yunette Anaya with senior author Mitch Rosen. As our listeners know, but always a good reminder, HCG serves as a surrogate for luteinizing hormone by binding the same receptor, but with higher affinity, increased bioactivity, and a much longer half-life. The minimum dose needed for HCG has not been definitively established, and higher doses of HCG, as we all know, have been associated with greater risk for OHSS. The LH surge is accompanied by a smaller FSH surge that is not required for oocyte maturation. But animal studies alone have shown that FSH can induce maturation, and some studies looking at the agonist trigger that induces both LH and FSH surges 
have pointed to the FSH component as beneficial. And there was a prior study by this group um, way back when Julie Lamb was a fellow looking at co-trigger with 450 units of FSH um, that did show improved outcomes in a subpopulation of patients. So the preliminary data on this is, is there. And so what the authors did was they combined these data and they set out to study whether triggering with 1,500 units of HCG plus 450 units of FSH induces non-inferior oocyte competence compared to the standard dose of HCG trigger used in IVF. And they define non-inferiority if it is at least 80% effective in promoting oocyte competence. And this non-inferiority margin was selected based on US FDA guidance that safer treatment should be at least 80 to 85% as effective as the standard of care to demonstrate sufficient benefit as a safer alternative. So I really like that they used a standard definition of non-inferiority. They recruited women who were ages 18 to 41 undergoing IVF with normal AFC, BMI of less than 30, no more than one canceled prior IVF cycle, absence of severe male factor, and then E2 had to be less than 5,000 on day of trigger in order to be included. The study was funded by an investigator-initiated grant by Faring, and patients were randomized on trigger day, and they were either randomized to study trigger or 10K of HCG. And there were some patients in the study who did get 5,000 international units of HCG. Egg retrieval standardly performed 36 hours after trigger administration. Fertilization was split by um, conventional insemination or ICSI where clinically indicated. And that then translated to some different metrics. They compared day of transfer, cleavage versus blast, PGT, uh, decisions were made prior to cycle start and at the discretion of the physician of record. The day after trigger HCG levels were checked, and this is an important point, if they were less than 18, then the participant was withdrawn and assessed for possible re-trigger. And that cutoff was based on prior data from their center showing adequate oocyte maturation and subsequent live birth at an HCG of 18 post-trigger. Blood was collected on the day of retrieval, day after, and five days after, and follicular fluid was also analyzed, and they punctured one follicle from each side. The primary outcome was the total competent proportion, defined as the probability of 2PN from an oocyte retrieval. And that really has to do with the fact that in the conventional insemination arm, they couldn't assess oocyte maturation um, on the day of retrieval. The secondary outcomes compared recovery and maturation, ICSI fertilization, embryo quality pregnancy rates, and sperm and follicular hormones. And they had 105 participants in the trial, almost equally divided between the two groups. They did do an intention to treat analysis. And the big picture is in the standard trigger, the probability that a retrieved oocyte resulted in a 2PN was 0.65. And I'm assuming, Kurt, our <laughs> resident epidemiologist, this is 65%. And the alternative trigger was a probability of 59%. The alternative trigger was determined to be non-inferior to the standard trigger by not exceeding the non-inferiority margin of 20%. So I can live with that, 65% versus 59%. But in the secondary analysis, the total oocytes trended lower, 16 versus 13, that wasn't statistically significant. Most of the other metrics, such as probability of M2 cleavage stage embryo, blastocyst embryo quality, were not statistically significant between groups. But when they looked at groups by the original randomization, the live birth rate was 48.1% in the alternative trigger group compared to 62.7 in the standard trigger group. Again, not statistically significant, and it was a smaller sample size, but arguably, I think, clinically relevant. Similarly, the percentage of viable pregnancies was 50% in the alternative trigger group compared to 64.7% in the standard trigger group. And again, not statistically significant. The cumulative live birth rates for the alternative trigger group also trended lower, likely due to the lower number of mature eggs. 
In the alternative trigger group, outcomes were stratified by post-trigger HCG, and those with an HCG level of less than 40 were found to do worse than those with an HCG of greater than 40 with regard to number of M2s recovered. And I think that's a really important point. Two patients in the standard trigger group had OHSS compared to zero in the experimental group. So a lot of data, it didn't cover everything, but I want to reiterate the uh, high-level points. So first and foremost, a lower trigger has a lower risk of OHSS, but was also shown to have a lower recovery of M2O sites from mature-sized follicles. Those who had an HCG level of less than 40 were most impacted. You could consider using this alternative trigger as an alternative to 5K of HCG in a down-regulated cycle. And I think that it's a really, it's an elegantly designed trial. It's a really good nugget of information to have. It's another tool that we can have in our back pocket. But I do still think that more research is needed to allow for a more individualized approach. I think that in patients where we are truly concerned about OHSS, the right answer is probably still an agonist trigger using an antagonist cycle. And one other mention is just the cost. When you compare the cost of 450 units of FSH plus 1,500 of HCG, you're adding another four to $500 to that trigger based on the FSH alone. And so I, I, I really commend the authors. I think it's beautifully done. I love the study. I'm just not sure in what situation I would use this trigger. So I'm curious to hear, Kurt, Pietro, what your thoughts are on this. So overall, I, I really do compliment investigators to really test a hypothesis like this and to you know put the time and energy and work into this. And I'm really glad it sees the light of day published in Fertility and Sterility. I think not every hypothesis results in a clinically um, usable change in practice, which is a shame. Um, but I did want to tell a, a quick anecdote um, when you were talking about non-inferiority. There's something, uh, I love the concept called generic drift, which is the FDA saying that something close to efficacy, 80% close, is good enough for non-inferior. So you get a, a pain medicine, for example, that's really expensive and you get a generic that's 80% of that. And then someone else comes up with a different medication um, and it's 80% of that. And then somebody else comes up with a third one and it's 80% of that. And you've got this thing called non-inferior drift where all of a sudden the third generation and the fourth generation is far inferior to the original. Just a neat epidemiologic concept. I thought it would change. I don't think it's relevant to this study. Again, I compliment the authors that this is a something new in our armamentarium. And um, I really encourage continued research like this. I think Eve's point about where or who she would use this for, I think is well taken. I, I looked at table one a little bit and try to figure out who is the patient that I would consider doing a low dose HCG with the gonadotropin boost, if you could call this. And to me, I can't, I don't, I don't have a good one. I like the idea of just lowering the HCG dose and risk reducing OHSS that way without spending more money and having a second injection that a patient has to take. And I'm a big proponent of the pure agonist trigger in the patients who have a high likelihood that we think it's going to work, meaning their starting LH is not suppressed um, and they're not at risk of failure. It may be in that hypothalamic cancer patient or that hypothalamic patient who has an incredibly high response to ovarian stimulation where you really don't want to give a Lupron alone trigger. Sometimes we'll do Lupron plus 1500 of HCG. And maybe in that population, you can, not to not to create a whole new Are you going to uh, advocate trigger. three triggers here? The triple trigger? The triple trigger. You can add in a whiff of FSH on top of that to really give it a little boost. But what I have found in my own experience and in our practices experience is the more medications you use for trigger, the more the likelihood of having a trigger error. And those are often, um, unfortunately for our fellows who take the pager, those are often late night phone calls. Nothing can be done in the middle of the night about it. Incredibly stressful. And so I think it, we have to think about it from the patient perspective as well are, you know, in this study, the nurses or the pharmacists mixed up the trigger dose plus the 1500 HCG um, reconstitution plus the 450 um, real world practice. That's not always the case. And so I think it is, it's a wonderful study. I don't want to, I don't want to take it away. I, I wish everyone could do such beautiful work in 
answering these questions. It's just not, I think it's not going to be in my toolbox very frequently. All right, we'll pivot back to Mia. We're going to take a step away from RCTs and look at retrospective data. And this was a study that actually done from Northwestern entitled Relationship Between Paternal Factors and Embryonic Aneuploidy of Paternal Origin. So we spent a lot of time talking about maternal age, maternal obesity, and recently even ovarian reserve as being drivers of embryonic chromosomal aneuploidy. So it's refreshing to see a paper that takes a hard look at the sperm's contribution and the man's contribution to the embryo. This article was authored by Dr. Melissa Bonus from Northwestern, who, as an aside, I remember interviewing for residency four years ago, which is wild. It's nice to see her publishing an FNS with a team of authors from Northwestern. The author sought to evaluate the relationship between paternal age, obesity, and semen analysis parameters with embryonic aneuploidy of paternal origin. Age makes good sense. A lot of data exists describing blunted reproductive potential, increased rates of miscarriage with advancing paternal age. BMI is also a good one because we know paternal obesity has been shown to increase the risk of of altered sperm epigenetics, increased DNA fragmentation, and sperm DNA methylation, all of which we know have a role in embryonic chromosomal aneuploidy. And then finally, semen analysis is logical as well because we know severe oligo and severe teratospermia are associated with increased rates of sperm aneuploidy. The author sought to build on this existing literature and utilize a SNP-based PGT platform to really drill down on maternal versus paternal origin of aneuploidy, and then evaluate specifically the role of age, BMI, and semen parameters has on paternally derived chromosomal aneuploidy. They did this by retrospectively looking at five years worth of IVF and PGT cycles from Northwestern. And all these PGT cycles were performed using the Natera SNP-based platform, which allows for the determination of chromosome copy number, parental origin of each chromosome, and allows you to rule out DNA contamination. All of this using parental samples to compare against. And the embryos were classified as either euploid, aneuploid, or no call. There were no mosaics reported by the Natera SNP-based platform. These aneuploid embryos were subcategorized as having maternal aneuploidy, paternal aneuploidy, or mixed aneuploidy. And they took this data and conducted a logistic regression model with a generalized estimating equation that they initially adjusted for semen analysis, age, and BMI. But given lack of significance in the adjusted model, only unadjusted odds ratios are reported here for these three covariates. So in total, they had 453 IVF cycles, resulting in 1,720 biopsied PGT embryos available for analysis. A little flavor of what this cohort looks like. The mean maternal age was 36, BMI was 25, and ovarian reserve was good, it was 2.6. The male partners contributing sperm had a mean age of 39, a BMI of 27, and male factor was the primary infertility diagnosis in 12% of this cohort. So what did they find? Globally, 49.9% of embryos biopsied were aneuploid. Among the aneuploid embryos, 73% had aneuploidy that was isolated to the maternal contribution. 8% had embryonic aneuploidy isolated from paternal origin. And 8% of them had mixed both maternal and paternal origin to their aneuploidy. So what did they find for semen analysis? That was kind of one of their big things that they wanted to look at. And remember, 12% of this cohort had male factor infertility. The rate of embryonic aneuploidy of paternal origin was not associated with any semen analysis parameter. The paternal aneuploidy rate was 8.5% in embryos from men with normal semen analysis and 8.0% in men with an abnormal semen analysis. And this association held true when they looked at extremes, severe oligospermia and sperm that was derived from a TESI procedure. With regard to BMI, and remember these male partners had an average BMI of 27.5, there was no significant association between paternal BMI and aneuploidy of paternal origin. And finally, with regard to advancing paternal age, and again, average age here was 39 for the male partners, there was only a non-significant trend toward increased embryonic aneuploidy of paternal origin, 8.2% in men under 50 versus 3.0% in men over 50. So to summarize all this, they found that paternal age, BMI, and semen analysis parameters are not significantly associated with embryonic aneuploidy of paternal origin which I think is really useful for patient counseling and I think, uh, frankly, reassuring. But there are, of course, some caveats that we we should talk about. 
we're only talking about embryos that were one, fertilized, two, made it to blast, and three, were of sufficient quality for biopsy. So this means that only those sperm that were successful in fertilizing and contributed to high-quality embryos were included, which of course may attenuate any potential impact that BMI, age, semen analysis may truly have on embryonic antiploiding. I also wish that there was some background data about uh, blastulation rates, embryo quality, even morphokinetics, since these were all embryos that were grown in a time-lapse incubator to help round out some of this picture for us. And also I think missing is some information on smoking, alcohol, drugs, and other behaviors that we know are associated with detrimental reproductive outcomes. And maybe we'll see some of this in a follow-up study. But either way, I think this is a nice paper. It really takes to task the paternal contribution to aneuploidy, and I think does a really nice job of informing counseling, I think in a positive way. Eve, Kurt, what do you think? I'm biased because I was involved in the study, and I think that Marissa did a phenomenal job getting the study together. But I agree, and I think that looking at some of the arrested embryos would be a really nice next step direction for this study to go in. I think that anytime we do studies based on PGT, you get the data based on what you see. And I, I know I say this with a lot of studies, but I think oftentimes it's what we don't see that may be more informative. So thanks for the ideas. I'll pass them along to our group. And I, I think it's those are all salient points. I'm pleased to see this kind of data also, because it gives us some, I don't want to call it normative, but background data that we can, uh, we can describe to everybody. I mean, I was intrigued by the fact that the male contribution can be quantitated and is you know, less than, as expected, less than the female cont contribution, but still you can give a number. And it looked like the other aspects of male fertility that we look at don't seem to matter, which always begs the question, do we have the right tests for the male contribution? So maybe this will spur some research in, in the future and in other directions. Um, it doesn't bother me as a first step that we're only looking at um, good quality embryos because that's ultimately where we end up. It's more of a biological question, I guess, um, if you couldn't get good quality embryos. But so anyway, good, good paper, good clinical pearls. Yeah. And I think that one, I think the biggest take home point for me from this was that eight and a half percent was male contribution uh, to aneuploidy where, you know, so many, it's not a hundred percent female, but it's pretty close. And I keep wondering, is it something out of our control or have we just not found the control yet? The search continues and so does the podcast. Kurt, you have our <laughs> next article um, looking at timing of euploid blastocyst transfer with and without the endometrial receptivity analysis. Thanks, Pietro. I have a, a very illustrative study out of Shady Grove and NICHD with the title of Live Birth After Transfer of a Single Euploid Vitrified Warmed Blastocyst According to Standard Timing versus the Timing as Recommended by Endometrial Receptivity Analysis. The first oil by Nicole Doyle and senior author by Gene O'Brien. ERA is not a new topic to this journal or to this podcast, but this is actually a, a well-conducted study that's worth our time. So, let me just go back a little bit of review because sometimes we get lost in the weeds. The, the two most crucial components of successful implantation are a competent embryo um, and a receptive endometrium. And I would argue that we really don't have very good tests for either one of those. Another day, how we're testing the embryo and what's a good embryo, there's huge amounts of literature on that. But let's focus on this concept of what the heck is endometrial receptivity. We understand that an embryo has to implant, of course, but I don't think we have a real good understanding of the biology. So we have a lot of surrogate markers. We have estrogen levels. We have ultrasound measurement of the endometrial thickness. We have morphologic patterns, which have all been associated with implantation, but really not good markers. The one that we got really excited about was one that was molecular-based, and that was the ERA. So let me just, again, I've forgotten what the ERA actually was. So the, the endometrial receptivity analysis assesses the expression of more than 230 genes in the endometrial tissue, focusing predominantly on those that have to do with progesterone exposure. So it's, a, it's basically machine learning. It's, it's a computational predictor model that classifies the endometrium as either receptive, pre-receptive, or post-receptive based on these transcription profiles. It was based on a relatively small number of normative um, data in, in normal women, and it was very quickly taken into practice because we really didn't have anything else to help us in this difficult situation. 
So there's a lot of literature on this, and it's very conflicting and hard to interpret. But the point of the, this author's is this literature has some limitations. And let me just summarize it from my hat. It's because of the many different confounders. It's hard to get a very good study that doesn't take into account, for example, whether you're putting in euploid embryos or untested embryos, whether it's a single or a double embryo transfer, whether it's fresh or frozen, what's the control group, all of this, these things can confuse us. So this study uh, set out to look at what is the live birth rate, the preferred outcome, with a single, only single euploid frozen embryo transfer using ERA timing versus non-ERA timing. So really try to simplify the study into this. This also happens to be a very large um, study and one of the larger studies that we've come across. Let me go over the methods real briefly for you. There were 307 ERA timed FETs compared to more than 2,000 um, using a standard protocol. And the protocols were pretty standardized across the study. So in a sense, there's three arms. The ERA um, was divided into those that had receptive endometrium versus those that had a non-receptive. And for this study, they just lumped them together and, and just fixed the problem according to the suggestion of the ERA. And they compared it to those that were completely untested. And there's three main findings of the study. The first finding is that finding an ERA abnormality didn't seem to be associated with how many failed transfers you had before. It took me a while to figure this out. But they basically, they're saying is that ERA abnormality doesn't increase with failed transfers. So if you have three transfers, you're not any more likely to have an abnormal ERA test than if you had no transfers. So it begs the question, is this truly a diagnostic test or, beg I say, a random finding? Then the next finding was, what about the live birth rates if you corrected ERA versus non-corrected ERA? And the answer is, it didn't matter. You had the same pregnancy rates in someone that had a normal ERA and someone that had an abnormal ERA that that was corrected. I'll get back to that in a second, because that's the most intriguing one. And then the third finding is they compared all of the ERA tests to the non-ERA tests, and they also found no difference. So they can't find any benefit of ERA in pregnancy rates. So it, it kind of questions whether ERA is actually diagnosing this concept of abnormal endometrial receptivity. So let's break down the findings together, uh, even Pietro. What do you think of this finding that ERA doesn't seem to be more prevalent in people that have more pregnancy failures? I mean, what does that tell you? Well, I want to back up one step. And I think that the number was 59% of all patients who had an ERA done showed an abnormal ERA. And that was even higher than another paper that we had talked about on the podcast several months ago. So I think that in and of itself is a huge red flag of the degree of abnormality that we're seeing. And I think that this additional point of it, that the more failures you have doesn't predict an abnormal ERA, I think that's like a dose-response relationship showing like absolutely no relationship between increasing number of failures and abnormalities. It tells me that I think that we're barking up the wrong ERA tree. And one thing that really I've been pontificating a lot lately is, is it that the concept of endometrial receptivity is incorrect or is it the genes that are in this particular array are incorrect? And I think we are going to have an explosion of more data that are emerging, looking at different arrays and different platforms, looking at different gene expressions. So I think that this particular ERA, the iGenomics ERA that they used in this study is probably dead in the water, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the other receptivity analyses that are emerging in the market are necessarily wrong. I think that each of them are going to have to undergo various types of validation studies. So I'll go one step further and be a little bit more cautious. Thanks for your comment, because if you're trying to design a test, the test has to pick up abnormality. If you've got a test right now that's just as likely to find an abnormality in someone that is, quote, normal, and then someone that you think has, quote, unquote, recurrent pregnancy failure or recurrent implantation failure, and you still have the same amount of people that are tested as abnormal, you don't have a very good diagnostic test. So it begs the question, is, the, is it possible to use gene expression? Or as a believer would say, well, we just have the wrong genes. So that's something that we'll have to test later. But I would hope that any future ERA tests just don't say we fix the problem without 
showing the data because it took us years to get here, if you will. Yeah, I, I'm not a believer. I just want to clarify that. <laughs> but one other point, though, is I think I was really taken aback when I started diving deeply into these data when the test first emerged, that in order for something to become clinically used and widespread clinical use, the development is very different than a pharmaceutical. So a drug has to go through multiple clinical trials reporting to the FDA and outcome data have to show efficacy and safety for a drug to be approved. For a commercial test to be approved for clinical use, you have to show safety, but you don't necessarily have to show efficacy. And so I think that that's really important as we are talking about the emergence of new treatments. There's a very fine balance between being on the leading cutting edge and perhaps being a little bit more cautious waiting for the data to emerge and not necessarily being an early adapter, taking in every single new and shiny test that's introduced and immediately incorporating that into practice. Uh, agreed. And, and let me delve into the data a little more because I think it illustrates that point. So if, if this isn't a drug, I agree with you. So it doesn't go through the standard FDA approval process, but to be a diagnostic test, you're going to need to not treat some people. So the first I'm sorry, the second finding of this study was that the pregnancy rate was about the same whether you had a normal ERA or whether you fixed an abnormality. So um, that is some evidence that you're really not helping somebody. But the, the, the true believers would say, well, of course, the pregnancy rate is the same. I fixed the abnormality in those people that had it wrong, and therefore I brought it back to what it should have been. So that argument remains unconvincing, if you will, because there's ways to logically poke holes into it. So the third finding, I think, is the one that closestly, that more closely resembles the randomized trial that we want in this area. And that's when you compared these 307 people with ERA, whether it was normal or some that were corrected, to all the people that were not tested, theoretically, 48% of those had ab abnormal ERA assays that were not touched. And the pregnancy rate was actually unchanged, if anything, a little bit higher in those that were normal. Um, so that's the most convincing part in my mind. Now, again, a true believer is going to say it was not a randomized trial. Um, and the most important feature is something called confounding by indication. Um, confounding by indication is even though the study controlled for things like age and BMI and number of transfers, there's something innate in a clinician's ability to say this group needed this intervention, whereas this group didn't. And it's hard to control for that without randomization. So the true believers are going to say, again, it's still a non-randomized trial. I can't control over everything. It's very possible in these select people, I could have fixed something. But outside of a randomized trial, this is pretty convincing. It has a lot of... Um, very good strengths to the, the study. And that includes the isolation of a single euploid blastocyst. It's got large numbers. It looks at, at live births. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, although there are some limitations. I think this really shows that widespread use of ERA is simply just not helping your patients. I'm going to throw it out there and be controversial that I think this concept of a window of implantation that varies by a couple of hours in either direction, to me feels a little bit old. And I think increasingly the data has shown, at least with the tests we have available, it's not really a window of implantation, but more of a patio of implantation. The range feels like it's much wider and the endometrium is much more permissive than I think we originally thought. And that could be a reflection of the tests that we have to be able to assess that. But I think we've all have the clinical experience and our data to support that you can really put an embryo at a pretty wide range of times. Just ask your colleagues in different practices in different states, how many days after progesterone do you transfer an embryo? And you'll get a 24-hour difference routinely. And both of those centers will have strong pregnancy outcomes. So to me, I think the concept of a narrow window of implantation is fading and it's more of a patio of implantation. And I think we just need a better test to be able to, to suss that out. Yeah, it's also the way you look at it, right? I mean, the human embryo, for whatever reason, is incredibly robust in that, for example, only women get a topic pregnancy, right? That the, the embryo 
implants in a completely wrong place. Sometimes even in the abdomen, it succeeds. But that's an anecdote in the positive direction. And then there's the anecdote in the opposite direction. Wow, I've had women that everything looks normal when I put in four embryos and they're still not pregnant. So it's, isn't human reproduction incredibly fragile? And the human embryo is really difficult to implant. So it really depends on your perspective. Uh, although that's a neat story, my take on it is that we just don't really have the right test for what will make an embryo competent to implant in a receptive endometrium. We want the test, but we just don't have it. Yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I also just want to throw a shout out that this is, um, we interviewed Nicole Doyle on our podcast at ASRM and so got a sneak peek uh, into these data. And I think it's so fascinating the longer we've been doing this podcast now, starting to see the papers come through from those interviews. So I think it's, um, it's amazing. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your data with us last year at ASRM. And we are going to be interviewing authors of abstracts at ASRM this year as well. So be sure to stop by the FNS booth or the ASRM booth and say hi to us at the meeting. I also want to make a shout out for something I strongly believe in. This was a very nice interaction between a large private practice that has large number of patients that has an academic interest in bettering our patients' care. They took the time and energy to, to conduct a trial like this in conjunction with NIH. And it's really important. You know, we all need to learn from each other. We can't just focus on practice success and um, commercial success. This is the kind of data that has to come out and I'm really pleased to share it in virtually and sterility. All right, Eve, we're gonna continue with you. Tell us a little bit about chronic endometritis. I feel like it's something that you have an interest in and Northwestern has published a lot on. What does this paper tell us? Thanks, Pietro. I agree and I do have an interest and we have done a lot of work in our center on this. And this is, this is really interesting. So what this paper is titled, The Risk of Spontaneous Abortion After Antibiotic Therapy for Chronic Endometritis Prior to IVF ICSI uh, Stimulation. And this was done by Haixia Duan from Northwest Women's and Children's Hospital in China. The objective of this study was to assess whether cured chronic endometritis was associated with a higher risk of spontaneous abortion following IVF ICSI. So this was a prospective cohort study. Patients underwent routine hysteroscopy followed by IVF ICSI and outcomes were compared between women with chronic endometritis who underwent antibiotic therapy with a subsequent test of cure compared to women without chronic endometritis. And the main outcome was spontaneous abortion after initial embryo transfer. Patients were prospectively recruited and 4.1% of patients in their population were diagnosed with chronic endometritis. They had 338 women with chronic endo who underwent antibiotic therapy. And they used pretty, the definition of chronic endometritis really differs by studies. So not to get too much in the weeds, but they diagnosed chronic endo after 50 high power fields were examined with the presence of one or more CD138 cells identified per high power field. Um, and the reproductive outcome of these women were compared with those women who had a normal appearing endometrial cavity. So it sounds like they didn't biopsy in the normal cavity. Women with chronic endo underwent that subsequent hysteroscopy, and they excluded women who were over 42. They excluded PGT cycles. They excluded women who had RPL, though they didn't give a definition of RPL, whether that was two or three losses. And those who had a uterine anomaly were excluded. Patients who had persistent chronic endo after two courses of antibiotics were also excluded. What they noted was that the live birth rate was lower in the group with cured chronic endo compared to the unaffected comparison group, 43.9% versus 50.5% with an odds ratio of 0.77 and the confidence interval did not cross one. There were no statistically significant differences in clinical pregnancy rates between the two groups. And so what this shows is that there was a higher rate of spontaneous losses in the treated chronic endo group. They did a sensitivity analysis. They looked at fresh versus frozen transfer cycles. They had um, the majority of their cycles that they looked at were fresh. 
and fresh cycles did show a significantly higher rate of spontaneous abortion than those without chronic endo. But for euploid tested embryos, they still had an overall quite low spontaneous abortion rate. It was like 9% versus 11%. And then when they restricted to FET cycles, the difference was not statistically significant. And there was a wide confidence interval likely due to their small sample size. So what the study shows is that despite successful antibiotic treatment, women who had previous chronic endo experienced an increased risk of spontaneous abortion in the subsequent IVF ICSI cycle. So very interesting, I think very different than how we think about it. We always think once they have a test of cure, they should be every bit as successful as patients who don't have chronic endo. And so I, I think this is a new finding and I'm, I'm not sure exactly where to move forward from here. You know, I've written a little bit about this idea that not all chronic endometritis is infectious in origin. And chronic endometritis, there's non-infectious etiologies that are simply inflammatory. And you recruit the same cells and it looks the same. Things like having retained products, having uh, intrauterine IUD, things that aren't going to cause a clinical infection that will respond to antibiotics. You can sometimes attenuate the inflammatory response with antibiotics, but sometimes figuring out what the inciting event is and treating that reduces the inflammation and improves the profile in the endometrium. So I wonder, the thing question that I always have in the back of my mind with these studies is we, we keep treating with antibiotics everyone, and we are surprised sometimes when we see and don't see a response to antibiotics. If what we're just treating is something that doesn't need antibiotics and needs something else, needs targeted re inflammation reduction and then not antibiotic treatment. Yeah, and I also think that the definition of chronic endo is so different from study to study. And that's something that we've really tried to characterize within our center. But I also think that endometrial culture can be important too to really understand what it is that we're treating. But I think your point about inflammatory processes is, is very well taken. So I think in summary, there's more questions than answers to me from this study, but I think it's, it's grounds for future investigation. Yeah, I think this is a question of, listen, you're finding a quote-unquote abnormal or at least a different response called endometritis. The problem is it's probably a catch-all of many, many different etiologies and many different responses, and we're just starting to learn that. So again, this is an incremental gain in the research. I'm glad it's published so we can learn from it, but we have a long way to go in understanding this immunologic process. Kurt, tell us a little bit about cardiometabolic risk in middle childhood. This is kind of a non-traditional article. I was really pleased to see this, partly because I'm interested in this, but partly for pseudo-personal reasons. This is from the KIDS study, which started around 2016, for which, in all full disclosure, I applied for and was turned down. But they did a wonderful job of this KIDS study out of the NIH using the New York Health Systems um, in Albany and, and, and other places. Uh, and they basically looks at exposure of children conceived with either IVF or ovulation induction or without any of those methods and has now followed them. And we're now looking at middle childhood with an average around nine years. So why is this study of particular interest? The answer is that cardiometabolic outcomes in children have been hypothesized to be abnormal for art for a long time. And it boils down to, again, this developmental origins of health and disease hypothesis, or as I've tried to say, health affects reproduction, which affects health. So it really matters if the conditions of health of a mother at the time of conception really affect that of a child. Um, I think our MFMs have it wrong. It's not just what happens during gestation. I think it happens at implantation or even before implantation. Now, ART is a little bit of a, a specific exposure, if you will, because the theory is that embryo culture itself could be a risk factor for epigenetic changes. And epigenetic changes in the embryo could then lead to a cascade of alterations in both the implantation, the growth of the embryo, the gestation, and potentially for um, childbirth and beyond. So this study is looking at cardiovascular measures, and they comprehensively measured anthropomorphic measures, bioelectrical impedance for body fat, for blood pressure, pulse wave velocity, plasma lipids, hemoglobin A1C, and C-reactive protein. So with all that as a detail, the summary of the findings are actually pretty easy. It looks like, at least in this study, clinical measures at nine years of old do not indicate any greater cardiometabolic risk in children conceived with ART or ovulation induction. 
Now, please read the paper because there's lots of interesting findings. It looks like, for example, children conceived with ovulation induction started to be um, smaller for gestational age, but then there's a catch-up with perhaps a slightly higher BMI later. Now, it's hard to know if that's going to affect health in the long run. And a fun fact, for some reason, twins conceived with ART had lower blood pressure than twins not conceived with ART. Figure out what the clinical importance of that one is, if you will. So why am I presenting what is generally a reassuring study? And I think that this study has importance to all of us. Um, we should never be lulled to sleep by reassuring data, and we need to have continued surveillance of what we have contributed to the public health, which is children conceived with medical assistance. And we need to understand what that really translates into into greater health. Now, it's very difficult to get this kind of data. This is a very unique cohort. One limitation people would say was, how do you know whether these children really were conceived with ART or with OI based on birth certificate data? And there is data that says that women do understand this and the birth certificate is accurate. It's got, you know, more than 95% sensitivity and 99% specificity. So it's really good data. The importance of this is it's U.S. data also. It's our IVF practices and it's our lifestyles, our metabolic risk factors in the United States, or at least in upstate New York. So we can compare this data to many of the, much of the data that's coming out of um, Scandinavia and such. Generally, the data on this paper has been reassuring that across populations, uh, there are no cardiometabolic risk factors, but it still doesn't exclude the possibility, as has been hypothesized by some of my own colleagues, that epigenetic alteration of a single individual might be rare. And if it's a rare individual that has these cardiometabolic factors, that may show why some individuals are having difficulty later in life, but it won't show up in population data. So obviously, future research does have to continue on this, and also especially research after the pubertal transition. So there are some limitations to this kind of large-scale epidemiologic data, but this data should be on our fingertips as we counsel patients and as we understand what we're doing as a profession. So it's nice to have reassuring data that is quote-unquote negative published in fertility and sterility as well. I'll round out the podcast this month by telling you a little bit about an article entitled The Efficacy of Different Treatments for Type 2 Cesarean Scar Pregnancy. And I have to say, it's not often that we get a reproductive surgery paper. Uh, we often get lots of really high quality videos, and I'll encourage everyone to check those out on our YouTube channel. But a reproductive surgery paper is always nice. This paper reviews a Chinese experience treating cesarean scar pregnancies. And as kind of background, cesarean scar pregnancies are typically categorized into two types. One, the ember is implanted on the scar and grows into the uterine cavity. In type two, the sac or the ember is implanted into the scar and grows towards the bladder or the abdominal cavity. And it's really these type two that we know are the bad actors. This is where we see the placenta accreta spectrum disorder, uterine rupture, AV fistula, you name it. The biggest modifiable risk factor for badness here in these cases is one, early diagnosis to two, facilitate early intervention. And you name it, it's been tried hysteroscopy, laparoscopy, UAE, methotrexate. What these authors sought to do was to review their single-center, nine-year Chinese experience in treating 160 women with a type 2 cesarean scar pregnancy with either upfront UAE, surgical resection, or a final group that was undergoing ultrasound-guided DNC after the injection of something called lauromacrigol. I wasn't familiar with lauromacrigol before this, so I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's a sclerosant agent that's commonly used in sclerotherapy for hemangiomas and varicose veins. And the idea is that you inject 5 to 10 cc's of this agent slowly around the gestational sac until you stop seeing blood flow on Doppler ultrasound. Similar to how we manage with KCL or methotrexate into the sac, but in this case, it's into the myometrium around the sac. These authors wanted to report on how these various methods at their single institution lead to treatment success, failure, the need for re-intervention, and the time it takes to get a negative HCG. A successful treatment by their definition was defined as complete recovery without severe complication, defined as uterine rupture or hemorrhage, and not requiring additional treatment to resolve that pregnancy. Treatment failure was defined as a complication, such as bleeding greater than 200 mLs, or a declining HCG rate of less than 50% seven days after treatment. 
Here's some stats for this population. The mean age was low, low 30s. Most had had at least one previous C-section, and that previous C-section was typically five to six years prior to presenting with the cesarean scar implantation. There are some differences between the groups that receive these treatments. And again, this is not randomized. This is retrospective. Gestational age, the range ranged from 48 days to 63 days. Sac diameter ranged from 28 days to 42 days. And even the presence of an FH varied between groups from 30 to 50%. The one thing that was consistent across all three groups was that there was no difference in the mean presenting HCG level, which for this study was in the high 40,000s to low 50,000s across all three groups. Overall, treatment success when you looked at all groups was 87% in UAE and 95% in the surgery group. No statistically significant difference between those two groups. Similarly, there was no time, there's no difference in time to a negative HCG or resumption of menses between the, between the three groups. There were, however, 15 treatment failures, which I think are illustrative and we should just talk a little bit about. 11 of these treatment failures came from the UAE group. Six of those 11 presented with vaginal hemorrhage. Five of those required laparotomy and one required uterine tamponade. The other four required methotrexate for persistent tissue. The other four failures for, were from the loromacrogol group, of which three required treatment for residual tissue. The biggest predictor of failure was the gestational age of presentation. With a gestational age of 50 days in the success group versus 58 in the failure group. There is one nice touch to this paper, which I think is why it's nice to have it in fertility and sterility, is that they also report on long-term fertility outcomes. Of the 147 patients that they were able to stay in contact with, 19 of them desired future conception. 16 of those patients were able to get pregnant, and 11 had a term delivery, five had a miscarriage, and only one had a recurrent cesarean scar implantation, which I think is a nice counseling point for patients. So I have to say, this data reinforces my thought that the laparoscopic, the surgical, the definitive approach really is the one that gives you the best opportunity for resolution of the pregnancy, but also the opportunity for repair and revising the scar to hopefully have some degree of risk reduction if future fertility is desired. But I think this data also suggests that there are some other approaches that are reasonable, particularly in women who don't desire for future fertility. UAE, seems to work well, understanding that most of the failures did come from that group. And then Laura Macrogall, unfortunately, I think is just not available in the United States, and I don't see it on the horizon in the short or long term. But that's a group that I also just worry a little bit about long-term um, quality of that myometrium that you've sclerosed purposefully to resolve this pregnancy. Kurt, you've dabbled a little bit in the methotrexate research and ectopic pregnancy research, as some of our listeners know. What's your take on this article, reading it as, a, as an editor? Well, I think the reason that that like this gets published is because it's, while not high on the critical scale of methodology, it's the best data we have and, and you know, sharing experiences um, you can learn from. But remember, we're at a far cry from talking about endometrial receptivity, where we have thousands of patients. We're basically looking at the anecdote of a number of well-meaning physicians that tried a couple of things to see which one works best. Um, history doesn't always demonstrate that some of these decisions were correct, but you know at least you can get some comparative data here. I'm not a big fan of UAE. I think that it treats the problem in front of you, but causes more problems down the line. And I think that's just kind of short-sighted. Well, with that, it's been great to be back with both you, Kurt and Eve, for another episode of the Fertility and Really on-air podcast. We do want to end with a special note from Kurt regarding letters to the editor. Yeah, so it's nice to say that Letters to the Editors are back in the print version of Fertility and Sterility. And if you would like, you can go back and look to see whether the BCL6 testing um, has clinical utility. You can look at the scientific discourse about the genetics of primary ovarian reserve, testicular sperm characteristics in men, and the quality and quality aspects of ovarian reserve. So consider your Fertility and Sterility editorials as well. PHR Eve, it was a pleasure. Look forward to talking with you again in a month. And uh, listeners, thank you very much. We appreciate all comments. If you'd like to send us some comments about style, mistakes, anecdotes, please share them at fertstert at gmail.com. And make sure you put FNS podcast in your subject box so it comes to us. And I'll end with a final note, just a thank you for the people behind the scenes who make this podcast possible. Our executive producer is Dr. Michael Simone, and he works with a team of dedicated fellows to produce not only this podcast episode, but also the FNS 
unplugged podcast episode. So thank you to them and his team. And again, Micah, if you're listening or we have a chair and a microphone waiting for you, we're eager to have you back until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Thank you.